Roman, yay! Today it's Friday, September twenty fourth, twenty twenty one. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco. We're on Ramaytush Ohlone land. And for more information, please go to ramaytush.org, and that's R A M A Y T U S H dot org. And you can find a lot more information there. You can also donate, and uh, we also have a land acknowledgement page on our website at weeklyrev.org with a lot more information. Uh, difficult to summarize it all, but definitely do check that out. Got a, a blank show. You can fill in the adjective. Not sure. I can't predict the future. I have some. I feel like I have some kind of sense of, of things, but uh, can't predict what type of show it's going to be. Also, last week's show, uh, there were some technical difficulties when it was uploaded. So we're working on it, but we still have it recorded and hope to have it up very soon for you all. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, perhaps you're listening for the first time. Maybe you um, listened before. Um, either way, thanks so much for listening in. We play music, go over some anti-capitalist news from uh, more independent sources, and try to combat all the misinformation that's put out there by corporate media and uh, rich people and cops. I feel like that's a pretty good summary. And I've got a few news articles I pulled up ahead of time, as well as a few teachings that are happening. And... Uh, um, like many folks out there uh, growing up in the United States, there was a lot of brainwashing going on in a lot of various ways. So still trying to educate myself and um, whether that's uh, reading or listening to uh, people who actually know what they're talking about or, um, yeah, just trying to like also just question my own preconceived notions and beliefs. And uh, so there are teachings that are happening. That's my point. Oof. You know, I, I prepare for the show in advance. To an extent, I select some articles that I've seen um, through the activists that I follow on Twitter or things that are posted on Reddit or various other organizations or emails I get from lists I'm on. And I'm like, oh, this will be good. This will be good. And I, you know, collect at least 10 articles uh, and or events to share. And I'm like, oh, this will be great. And then I get and then I, I come in and I'm like, I click, I open the tabs. and I'm like, oof, that's a rough one. And uh, I mean, it's. Unfortunately, it's the world we're we're living in, and uh, it's important just to acknowledge what's happening. 
uh, for instance, the first one I have in front of me, and again, I don't necessarily have these in any specific order. Sometimes I do if I have a little bit more, I don't want to say if I have more time, if I make more time to prioritize and to have a good segue in between articles, I can maybe start off with certain articles, but for instance, just randomly I clicked on one, this is from Wilmet Valley Hate Watch from up in Oregon, and you can follow them on Twitter at us versus bullies. It's a pretty succinct Twitter handle. A Portland clinic is being targeted by anti-abortion Christo-fascists. Time to mobilize. Now, I wish that this, uh, I wish clinics could actually just exist in this world and help people, but unfortunately, uh, I mean, the, the, the fact that we're wasting our time and our breath, and our breath on just having to um, ensure people get health care is just astounding. But here we are, so it's important to talk about it, and uh, me sticking my head in the sand is not going to help. So um, this is from another Twitter thread that happened on September 23rd from Razor Confetti. Uh, Anti-choice groups are targeting a newly opened independent abortion clinic in Portland, Oregon. Their intent is to create such a disturbance in front of the building that other tenants in the building complain and the lease is not renewed. They'll be out there from 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Ew, and there's a stupid-ass fucking pro... Ugh, pro I'm going to call them a pro-birth group. So fucking gross. I... It's just so fucking gross. And one of the first jobs I had was working, uh, canvassing for um, an abortion clinic in Oakland that unfortunately is no longer. It was called the Women's Choice Clinic. It was in downtown Oakland, and we and they just provided healthcare for low-income women. And uh, unfortunately, it, you know, difficult to to stay afloat. Um, yet, plenty of uh, evil businesses are able to stay or stay around. And this place was not. Anyway, I'm just thinking about that right now. And it was definitely a difficult job because canvassing is not easy by any means, especially when you are, even in the Bay Area, you know, not everyone here is uh, in favor of people having uh, control over their own bodies, which is just astounding to me. But, and I was also a lot younger, a lot more shy, and uh, definitely had some pretty nasty reactions to it. And there were some fun, plenty of folks who did support, but it's also, um, oh, it was just rough. I remember one time I went to Steve Jobs' house, and this was in, I guess, Palo Alto, and uh, he didn't answer. I think he also had, like, had a gate up. We couldn't really talk to anyone or anything, but I always thought about what if he had answered or someone who worked for him had answered and he had been able to, you know, a small contribution had been able to keep this place open. Anyway, that's neither here nor there, and Steve Jobs is dead, and uh, abortion's still under attack. So what are you going to do? So let's um, let's read more about this thread. And sorry to bum you out, but that's kind of, uh, oh, what's, what's going on? Another new tactic is that they have iPads that they're using to show people misleading videos and have them take surveys based on them. It would be a real shame if a bunch of people skewed their survey results with wild answers. Um, and let's see. They're asking if, uh, in the thread, they're asking if folks are in contact with the clinic. Um, I know in San Francisco a few years ago, there are folks who were protesting outside the Planned Parenthood that was, I think it's still there, that was over on Valencia. I was just like, ugh. And I had a friend who worked over at one, over in, I think, Walnut Creek area. And this person said that it's best not to, like, engage with the protesters because it makes things more difficult for folks who are trying to go in um, as much as might one might want to and, I think, righteously need to kind of... Uh, I just can't, like, you're... People who spend their time protesting in front of a fucking healthcare clinic. That's, like, helping people. I can't... I, oh, and there's so much misinformation. Anyway... 
Okay, so someone else responds, I would imagine they probably don't want a huge and loud presence with signs because that will just be more intimidating for patients, but I know just showing up in small numbers throughout the day to politely engage with the antis and keep them distracted would be helpful. And someone else responds, I used to volunteer as a clinic escort. We were told to avoid engaging with protesters verbally or otherwise, as that tends to encourage them. The goal is to be a barrier between protesters and patients to make sure patients can safely access care. Um, and as people have mentioned, it's best to take direction from the clinic itself. Prioritize actions that provide dignity and privacy for clinic patients. All right. So, um, yeah. Um, so um, on our website, weeklyrep.org, we have show notes, and I will be posting a link to this thread with more information. Um, so if you are in Portland and or know folks up there who are able to support this clinic, please do so. Ugh. All right, so uh, here's another terrible news story. Um, uh, and this is from Aaron in the morn. Alert just dropped. Texas special session includes a bill to detransition trans youth, pull them from puberty blockers, and force them through the wrong puberty. It defines getting trans care for trans youth as child abuse will out trans children and irreversibly harm them. This came out on September 20th. Uh, the bill treats giving trans youth the global medically accepted transition care as child abuse in the same categories as sexual assault of a child, physical abuse of a child, substantially harming a child, creating child pornography. Uh, Texas is trying to kill trans kids. There are trans people in Texas who are stealth, live completely as their gender, 15 years old, who under this bill in front of their friends and classmates will develop a deep voice, facial hair, etc. after living their lives as their gender. The cruelty is unimaginable. And there's the full text of SB, SB 28. And um, just for the cruelty of it, they also have three other bills that were just dropped. Two bills focus on banning trans kids from sports. One bill focuses on banning birth certificate changes. Stupid. Um, and apparently Twitter decided to censor and remove one of the tweets because uh, the author specifically called out the bill um, that this bill places giving transition care to trans youth alongside other nefarious forms of child abuse and names those forms. Uh, Texas Republicans literally want to take kids <coughs> excuse me, uh, from affirming families and send them to families that will practice conversion therapy. It's genocide. Oh, goodness. It's so fucking disgusting. And there's a lot of people in the threads just saying how fucking awful this is and parents of trans kids um, just saying how horrific this is. Oh, goodness. All right. Um, yeah, I want to apologize even though I'm not, uh, I mean, I'm just a messenger here and, uh, it's pretty fucking awful. Okay, speaking of awful, how about, uh, ICE? They're pretty fucking awful. ICE and, uh, Border Patrol were a bunch of fucking Nazis going around separating people from their families and abusing people. And then there was a photo in Texas of, uh, Haitian refugees and, uh, a Border Patrol agent, like, assaulting, viciously assaulting people. And then, you know, it got a lot of notoriety, and the uh, Department of Homeland Security was like, oh, this is really bad. And I'm like, your, your whole department's full. Like, that's what your department does. Like, how, 
it it just doesn't it's like they try to pay lip service to it but their act their entire department is designed to cause harm to people so one person acting in a being photographed in an extreme way when we know that a lot of these things happen and are not photographed uh it's just so fucking sick so there's been a lot of protests um, there have been protests for, I mean, since is, and also just ICE is not a very old agency, too. So we, we've lived before it. We can live after it, and I hope it fucking, ugh. I'm going to breathe, and I'm just going to, it's not enough. I'm not woo-woo in that way where I can just wish for a better world without ICE, because it, it takes action. It takes people in the streets. It takes a lot of organizing, and that's what we'll be sharing here, some information. And this is from Vishal P. Singh, who is a reporter down in L.A., and this is from September 23rd. And you can follow Vishal on Twitter, and their Twitter handle is VPS underscore reports. And Vishal is uh, here at the Edward R. Roybal Federal Building. Activists are demanding the infamous Adelanto Ice Concentration Camp Detention Center be shut down. A hashtag Communities Not Cages press conference is set to begin soon. And there's some video, and then there's a flyer for the press conference. And this happened, let's see here, on September 23rd, so this was yesterday. And again, I know this, people might be listening to this show, and it's difficult to do like a timely news show because things are constantly changing so fast. However, I think it's really crucial to understand what has happened, what is continuing to happen, and also to go back and look and, see, you know, if you if folks are maybe new to organizing or want to help out in some way to really support the people who've been on the ground already doing this work because um, folks really know what's going on, and I'm sure they'll appreciate even more bodies showing up. So let's see. Speakers today start off by giving a rundown of the abuses and retaliation that detainees have faced. And again, this is only at one of the ICE detention centers. And uh, let's see here. ...united in the fight to shut down the ICE detention center in Adelanto. We are here today to demand the shutdown of Adelanto and an end to the racist and profit-driven system of immigration detention. As advocates and organizers, we are profoundly grateful to the speakers who have agreed to share their stories today. These men and women suffered horrific treatment while detained in Adelanto, including medical neglect, inadequate protection from COVID-19, exposure to toxic chemicals, spoiled food, isolation from their families and attorneys, and retaliation for peaceful protests, among other abuses. Their courage in coming forward is extraordinary. Clearly, the human rights violations at Adelanto and other detention centers cannot be allowed to continue. But we are not here to ask for reform, because there is no reforming a system whose basis for existence is the arbitrary and prolonged deprivation of liberty. On paper, ICE detention is not punitive. The immigrants behind bars at Adelanto are civil detainees. In reality, the conditions at Adelanto have not changed since it was converted from a private prison to an immigration jail. The only difference is that immigrants detained at Adelanto are not serving a fixed sentence, and therefore they cannot even comfort themselves by counting down the days until they are released. The truth is that ICE detention is punishment. It is punishment for the crime of being a black or brown immigrant. We call on the Biden administration and all state and local lawmakers to take action to shut down the Adelanto Detention Center and investigate the abuses. This is a first step toward abolishing an unjust and shameful practice once and for all. Thank you. All right, and the next uh, video, detentions of refugees and asylum seekers are increasing under Biden, as are human rights violations. 
there's another uh, clip. Fascination from, from coast to coast demanding community snack cages, free them all, and they stop to all deportations. And we continue to bring light on how the Biden administration is failing to live up to his promises of a more humane and just immigration system. In fact, the Biden administration has continued to carry out anti-black racism toward Haitian immigrants, including mass deportation flights, violent and inhuman treatment by Border Patrol, and the latest shocking development, seeking a private contractor to operate Guantanamo Bay, known for its history of human rights abuses, to stop and detain Haitian immigrants seeking protection. After Haiti has been destabilized by an earthquake, a presidential assassination, and experiencing a humanitarian crisis. We join in solidarity with organizations like Baji and Haitian British Alliance, part of the Shotan Adelanto Coalition, to demand a stop to all deportations of Haitian migrants, an end to Title 42, and an end to all deportations. What do we want? End all deportations! What do we want? End all deportations! When do we want it? A few days ago, seven African immigrants at the Glade Detention Center in Florida were pepper sprayed and sent to solitary confinement just for fighting for their human rights. They are now uh, in fear for their lives and demanding their rights to be respected, for them to be released, and for them and for the Glade Detention uh, Center to be shut down. These are similar uh, abuses that we see here at the Adelanto Detention Center. Biden has also failed to act urgently on ISIS deadly immigrant detention system. Thus far, the number of people in detention has increased by 70% under his presidency. Boom! Not only that, this. Um, next up, uh, the violence from ICE CBP uh, has been expanding. The last fiscal year was the deadliest in immigration detention, with 25 lives lost. This pattern of expansion emerging under the Biden administration, currently seeking to expand ICE attention in places like Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Texas, and turning the first family detention center into an adult facility instead of shutting it down for good. This is yet another example of how the Biden administration is failing immigrant communities. We demand Communities, not cages! Communities, not cages! Communities, not cages! Under Biden, we have also seen people being transferred from detention center to detention center under a global pandemic. This is unacceptable. As detention centers shut down, people, move, people must be released and not transferred. So we demand free them all! 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 Free them that results in system-wide abuses, including death. The last fiscal year was the deadliest in immigrant detention, with 25 lives lost. 
The federal government is wasting billions of dollars in this agency, $23 billion to profile, jail, and deport immigrants. Instead of defunding ICE and CBP, Biden's budget proposal and his latest request allow ICE to spend on detention at a higher rate. We demand defund hate. We know lives are in jeopardy under ICE and CBP custody. Every detention and deportation represents family separation, causes trauma to families, children, and communities. Instead, we need investments in our communities to thrive. Communities, not cages! Communities, not cages! All right, in the next video, a former detainee from Adelanto shares his experiences. for almost two years and eight months and I suffer I've been abused for geo ice and detention at the department for medical and I, I got a lot of people I got a, a lot of friends women and, and Adelanto still suffer so I need help for everybody ask the Mallorca please close the detention Adelanto Thank you. And uh, next up, uh, at Youth Justice LA speech from the press conference, which is part, let's see, we've got part one of two here. When survivors speak, systems will fall. I say that again. When survivors speak, systems will fall. My name is Paul Soak. I'm the Crew Immigration and Technologies Coordinator with the Youth Justice Coalition based in South Central Los Angeles. We currently inhabit the land, actually a court building I want to say, and that's what reclamation of systems that have been incarcerating folks and deporting folks looks like. It's when we reclaim these systems and provide community centers and supports for our young people and for people to thrive. I came to this work because I was born in Thailand but raised right here in LA. Crazy thing, right? What makes me any different than somebody that was born here? What makes me any different than that person with a badge walking around getting paid salary, overtime, and all that other stuff to come and stare at us? What difference does that make? We're all human beings, we're all people. But as a young person, I struggled, got kicked out of school. When my dad died, I became parentless. Um, they said, uh, they said, good luck, go to this other place, packet-based education, give me pieces of paper, copied out of a redundant textbook that was three editions old. What do you expect when that happens when they spent more to build prisons for campuses of higher education versus the 20 plus prisons they built between the 80s and 2000 when there were only 12 between the mid 1800s and 1980s? What do you think happens? What do you think happens when amnesty was granted but then they funded border patrol enforcement when they also made the criminal alien program? They give but they also take. And so we're here to demand that there shall be no more taking, there should only be giving. Imagine if a border patrol was not out on a horse that we're seeing in media, but if they were out there with gallons of water to feed people coming across the deserts because they needed to thrive and survive. Imagine if this building was emptied out and became a high school, a hospital. What would that look like? Imagine if this conglomeration right here that operates the two most difficult laws in the United States. Right, and part two of his speech coming right up. It's the two most 
difficult laws in the United States. Federal courts have said it time and again. IRS tax code is most difficult in the U.S. and second to that is immigration law, Title VIII of the United States Code. So what do they care about? They care about taxation, they want their money, they want to kick you out, and they don't want to let you in. And that's what this building represents. That's what Adelaide rep represents. And I say it represents that because I started my journey in Mesa Verde after I was incarcerated from the age of 17 all the way into my mid-30s. I got sent to Mesa Verde. Well, somehow I ended up in Arizona. Somehow I ended up in Denver. Somehow I ended up in Seattle, Washington. And at some point I was released under an order of supervision as what they call a free person, as an adult for the first time. I had to check into this building, I had to go over to a private contractor down there, and I had to go to California State Parole. That is not liberty, that is suppression. And shortly lived after that, I ended up going back, because this place told me, come check in, we need to update your paperwork. But when I walked in, they told me to get up on the wall, put my hands behind my back, and took me back in and put me in the basement underneath this building right here. And I got sent away again. I got sent away as far as Louisiana one time. And when I was dropped off, they told me here's your space. They threw me on a basketball court concrete overnight and told me to sleep there. That's where I would stay for the night being outdoors with a plane full of other people that just landed because they said they didn't know you were coming because we got arbitrarily sent there by this building. But these systems are not designed to thrive. They're not designed to help communities. They're designed because they go back to the laws that the first Congress of the United States wrote in 1790 and said the citizens of the U.S. is the free white person. And these systems are progenies of that. That's what they're built and designed to do. Keep the free white person in power. It's not meant for anybody else. And so we must abolish all these systems. We must reimagine what it looks like to take care of our people. Thank you. My name is Luis Nolasco, Senior Policy Advocate with the ACLU of Southern California. Uh, I'm happy to be here with you all this morning uh, in our collective fight to close ICE detention centers across the country. As the ACLU, we are committed and echo the words of everybody here. It is imperative that the Biden administration act now to begin the closure of facilities like Adelanto and Desert View. During the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, we litigated various cases such as the Hernandez Roman case out of Adelanto throughout the country around the lack of due process for detained immigrants and abysmal conditions. What we found were ICE's failure to ensure the safety of people detained inside and to not provide the adequate medical treatment for folks. Many ICE detention facilities failed to implement COVID-19 public measures, including refusing to test detained people and failing to provide personal protective equipment and hygiene products. As a result of our litigation, we won the liberty of our loved ones from these facilities and saw a national number of people in custody decrease to a new law we had not seen in decades. During this time, we saw a vision of what could be and what is possible. An alternative system where our loved ones are at home fighting their cases versus being locked up in these facilities wasting away. To wrap up, the ACLU back in March of this year sent a letter to Secretary Mallorca's echoing these demands and asking for the urgent closure of 39 ICE detention facilities across the country. The timing is crucial, as currently ICE is sitting and paying for thousands of empty beds 
uh, at, at an enormous taxpayer expense. We are paying for these beds. This is a waste of hundreds of millions of dollars of money that could be better spent on alternatives to the tension and creating these systems that our speakers here have shared with you today. We must continue to push the Secretary Mayorkas and the Biden administration to commit on their campaign promises and close immigrant detention now. Thank you. That was the senior policy advocate of ACLU, SoCal, uh, Luis Nolasco. And then next we have a former, another former detainee talks about how ICE neglected him for mental health care, even though he's diagnosed with a mental disability. Our efforts to demand help. Hi, Ramon Valdez. I'm categorized as a Franco case under federal law due to my mental health diagnosis of schizophrenia, among others. Because of this, I have several medications that I need to take to treat my mental health illness. Yet ICE has not willing to provide them for me. The grievance coordinator who I to take treatment of mental health illness, but yet ICE has not willing to provide them for me. The grievance coordinator who I com complained to about my lack of medications abused me and called me a liar. She is triggered by schizophrenia, making me believe that she was going to hurt me. I was sent to urgent care to St. Mary Hospital for mental health. I was there for seven days. I was prescribed antipsychotic and antidepressant medications by the doctor of St. Mary. Never provided them for me. I neglected my health along with the health of my brothers and sisters in detention. The ACLU has already asked Mallorca to ensure the closure of the Atlanta facility given that I met the following criteria. The facility was opened uh, without adequate justification. That's review and the facility is located in a remote location that effectively limits access to legal counsel and medication care and or closure to facility is warrant to ignorance patterns of inhumane treatment or conditions. Thank you. My apologies for not also providing a, a trigger warning before the show. This is, um, people are talking about, just wanting to uh, be a listener out there to take care of yourself um, while listening here, uh, if that feels right to you. Um, next is Anna, who used to be detained in the Adelanto ICE Detention Center run by GEO Group. Uh, talks about her horrifying experiences being detained for around two years. When I have spent two years in immigrant in Adelanto Detention Center, and it was very sad being there. And I have experienced a lot of inhumane treatment for myself and for thousands of women that I have seen throughout those two years staying in there. and. That doesn't need to happen, but for some reason it is still happening in our century today where we are talking about being humane to people. And at the same time, immigrants who are fleeing from their countries, afraid for their lives, who probably would have been dead if they haven't come to this country, have to experience this treatment every day for months in there. Just because that's how it works, because the private prisons are making a lot, a lot of money from the suffering of human beings. and. I just really wish that it would stop. And I can go on and on about the medical abuses and the neglect and the mistreatment and abuses of the officers and how futile it was to try to complain about anything anywhere because all you get in response was retaliation against you and no help whatsoever. But 
All I just want to say that I just wish that it would stop that unnecessary suffering that people are still experiencing. And I really, really hope that they will shut down Adelante and all the immigration detentions everywhere so people can be in the community and not experiencing additional trauma on top of everything that already happened to them. Thank you. All right, there's just one more I'll play. I know this is quite a lot, but I wanted to share just one more short little video here, and then we'll take a bit of a music break. This is, here we go. Hello, everyone. My name is Lupita, and I'm also here with the Free LA High School, which stands on freedom. Fight for the revolution to empower and educate Los Angeles. These are my students right here. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, I just want to say that. You know, we are human. You know, we are not no immigrants. We are not undocumented. We are human. And it's uncruel to have people in cages in general. We need to shut down federal. We need to shut down state. We need to shut them all down. <laughs> They're excited. Um, I just really want to say, where are the children? Where are the children? And why do we have children in dog cages? Why it's so embarrassing that we we need funding in our communities. We need we need to make sure our young people are treated with love and care and treated with all the resources that they need. And it's a shame how much money they spend to incarcerate a young person. It's a shame on how much money they spend on their new vehicles. It's a shame on how much money they spend on overtime. It is a shame. It is a shame. Young people are the future. And if young people are the future, what kind of future are they printing? Just because your zip code, just because your zip code is better than theirs does not mean that they should get a better treatment. We are all people, right? So I just want to say that the young people are the future and we need to defund the police, defund and really, really fund our communities and have love and care for our communities. Um, and I really want to appreciate these young people for coming out today. And Thank you guys very much. All right, so we'll post a link to morning, this. It's uh, quite a lot there. So uh, there's even more to this thread. So we'll post a link on our page at weeklyrev.org. And again, this was a thread by the reporter of Michelle P. Singh. Um, so wanting to, to share that with everyone out there. Yeah, um, we've got some more news coming up and uh, just a, a lot more going on. I did want to share some more music. And Lil Nas, X, Lil Nas X's album came out last Friday, so I wanted to share some new songs from that and just feeling really grateful when hearing about young people or younger people, um, how grateful I am for folks like Lil Nas X who are out there and being open about who they are and just how inspirational that is. So here's a couple songs, and we'll be back in a bit.
Say you wanna me, say you need the validation. Tell me that you think you on top your last creation. Word on the block is you fell off and I'm just saying if it ain't no town roll, little Nazi ain't playing, nigga. Just stick to what you best. I suggest make another one like this. Huh, yeah, oh, I know it hurt your soul to know it was only luck. Huh, if you drop a song, nigga, we won't give a fuck. No, I like this, I don't like that. Do this shit, don't you do that. Say you wanna me, say you wanna me, yeah, yeah. Say you wanna me, say you wanna me, yeah, yeah. I like this, I don't like that. Do this shit, don't you do that. Joke, been a gimmick from the go. All the things that you do just to get your face to show. Oh, you think you big shit, big pimping? Let me know. Ain't the next big thing, you the next thing to go. Now, can you prove yourself? Everybody wait on. I'm just being real, spread somebody hate on. I don't see you lasting long, and that's just me being honest. Even if your album okay is flopping, that's a promise. So, I like this, I don't like that. Don't you do that Say you wanna me, say you wanna me, yeah, yeah Say you wanna me, say you wanna me, yeah, yeah I like this, I don't like that Do this shit, don't you do that Say you wanna me, say you wanna me, yeah, yeah Say you wanna me, say you wanna me, yeah, yeah Y'all take a room and y'all gon' wear it out. Fuck all that talk about who's in the whereabouts. I walk in Nemes and Marcus and bear it out. Walk in the bangers and fuck it, let's clear it out. Talk about who's in the whereabouts. I walk in Nemes and Marcus, I'm buried out. Walk in the bangers and fuck it, let's clear it out. I'm the same Dallas Science line, they gon' hear me. I'm the same Dallas Science line, they gon' feel me. I'm the same Dallas Science line. I'm the same Dallas Science line. <laughs> Real hot girl shit, they can't stop me. Say I can't do it, bitch, watch me. All you lame hoes turn hate into a hobby. Me, gotta turn you on. I should have my own category in point. Ooh, I'm just such an obsession. See about me, your IG suggestions. Thick, no add on prosthetics. Everything about me came from genetics. Yeah, I've been getting money, I ain't new to this. Miss one, catch one, I ain't new to fish. But if he throwing that broad, and I get hooked, then you doing your job. Baby, 
all these hoes imitate me. You can fuck a stand or the real slim shade. Shots like a soul lot, then block it. Got more cream than a Sunday topping. coming up that I wanted to share from Haymarket Books. Um, one of them is happening on Tuesday, September 28th, uh, which is next week. Fortress Europe, Fortress USA, How Borders Work. Join Justin Akers Chacon and Chloe Haralmbus for a conversation about violence of bordering regimes hosted with salvage.zone. And this looks like it's going to be an online event. And we'll share a link on our website in these show notes. 
gonna click on it now to see if there's more information uh, I can uh, share with you all. So again, this is happening Tuesday, September 28th, um, and it is from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. It's zero to $25, so it's sliding scale. It's hosted by Annie Olaku Teriba and Barnaby Rain about this event. Contemporary capitalism relies heavily on an interconnected working class which extends across borders, cross-border production and supply chains, logistics, networks, and retail and service firms have aligned and fused a growing number of workers into one common class, regardless of where they happen to live. While money moves without restriction, the movement of displaced migrant workers across borders is restricted, punished, often violently so. All of this, and all of this is before imperial adventures and decades of neoliberal structural adjustment policies conspire to create the dire circumstances that lead to, quote-unquote, refugee crises. In both the U.S. and across Europe, this context has been seized on and converted to political fodder by mainstream parties of the liberal and reactionary varieties, while often flavored differently from outright scapegoating of migrants to hand-wringing calls for, quote-unquote, kinder, gentler deportation regimes, the growth and violence of the police state dedicated to the repression of trans-border populations has proceeded unabated for decades. So, um, okay. Uh, drawing on Justin Akers, Jacon's new book, The Border Crossed Us, and Chloe Harambas' work with Sea-Watch, uh, this Salvage Live event We'll look at the differences and similarities between Fortress USA and Fortress Europe, examine how to effectively dismantle their respective border regimes, and aim to explain how borders work and for whom. The conversation will be hosted by Annie Ololaku Tariba and Barnaby Rain. This discussion will be part of the ongoing Salvage Live event series hosted by Haymarket Books. I register through Eventbrite to receive a link to the video conference on the day of the event. This event will also be recorded and have live captioning. Great. So we will share a link so folks can register to this event. This seems really informative and so much to learn. So um, grateful that these folks are doing this, and we'll share a link in our show notes. Also coming up next week, Wednesday, September 29th, is Not a Nation of Immigrants. Join Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz and Bill Fletcher Jr. for a discussion of settler colonialism, white supremacy, and a history of exclusion hosted with Beacon Press Books. Um, click on the link here, share some more info about it. So again, this is happening Wednesday, September 29th, from 2 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. Pacific time, not a nation of immigrants, uh, not a nation of immigrants, settler colonialism, white supremacy, and a history of erasure and exclusion. A new book from Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz debunks the pervasive and self-congratulatory myth that our country is proudly fun founded by and for immigrants and urges readers to embrace a more complex and honest history of the United States. Very necessary. Uh, whether in political debates or discussions about immigration around the kitchen table, many Americans, regardless of party affiliation, will proudly say that we are a nation of immigrants. In this bold new book, historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz asserts this ideology is harmful and dishonest because it serves to mask and diminish the U.S.'s history of settler colonialism, genocide, white supremacy, slavery, and structural inequality, all of which we still grapple with today. While some of us are immigrants or descendants of immigrants, others are descendants of white settlers who arrived as colonizers to, to displace those who were here since time immemorial, and still others are descendants of those who were kidnapped and forced here against their will. This paradigm-shifting new book from the highly acclaimed author of An Indigenous People's History of the United States 
charges that we need to stop believing and perpetuating this simplistic and ahistorical idea and embrace the real and often horrific history of the United States. And they have a link to get the book. And you can also register through Eventbrite uh, to receive a link um, to the video conference on the daily event. The event, this event will also be recorded and we'll have live captions available. So this is also a sliding scale event uh, from zero to $25 suggested donation. Again, happening on Wednesday, September 29th from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Pacific time. And we'll provide a link um, to this on our show notes page at weeklyrep.org. Uh, there's, um, I was going to shift over to another story, but I also wanted to share that um, there were a lot of protests against the Biden administration in order to end deportations and to ensure better treatment of uh, Haitian asylum seekers. So I did want to share, there are some photos here from Miami um, over on Northwest 7th Avenue at Little River Drive in Miami. So I wanted to share that as well. And of course, this is just one of the uh, many uh, protests that have happened uh, against ICE recently and throughout time. All right, it's one... Oh, one. We take another music break. Oh, this next story. Yeah, I'm going to take another music break before we go into the next story. And then we'll be back uh, in a bit. So how about some uplifting music? Well, that helped wake me up. I think that might be uh, might be a positive thing. Here we go. We're a thousand miles from comfort. We have traveled land and sea. But as long as you are with me, there's no place I'd rather be. Kyoto to the base, strolling so casually. 
That was a cover of Hyper Ballad by, uh, let's see here. What was that? Was that not Soy? Um, I kind of picked a Hyper Ballad cover at random without listening to it first, because I was like in a very Hyper Ballad mid, and there's a lot of covers out there. And I, I like that one pretty good. A few weeks ago, I think I ended up playing like a few different versions in a row after the show here. So if you listen to any of the previous shows... The recording is still on. You might get to hear some of those. All right, and we also provide a link to all the music that we played on the show, put together a playlist, usually ahead of time, sometimes uh, at the moment, as I am today. And so in our show notes, you can find a link to all the music that we've been playing on the show today. 
Next up is another news story that's going to make me sad, which I know is surprising. I hope you're sitting down because I usually just share a lot of really happy news on the show about how everything's great and people treat each other with respect. Okay, so next up is an article from Massive Science. Um, you can find the site massivesci.com. When a person detransitions, pressure and threats, not regret, are most often the cause. And this is written by Ray Katz, and not at all a surprise. This came out on September 20th of this year, and I also remember when I transitioned, uh, there were certainly folks who were supportive and some who were not, and there definitely was a lot of that, like, what if you're making a mistake, or what if you want to go back and... Uh, there was a lot of misinformation, and I assume that we'll be hearing a lot about that, um, this kind of false, um, these, these false ideas about uh, what can happen um, from cis folks. And it's kind of like, oh, the most difficult part of transitioning has been and is just uh, transphobia from other people. It's not the, yes, it's fine that I'm trans, it's more the other... Uh, experiences I've had to deal with based on that from other people. So I think this article will shed light on that. Uh, in a study published in LGBT Health, researchers analyzed a survey data of 27,715 trans and gender diverse U.S. adults. Trans and gender nonconforming people may express themselves in gender affirming ways, such as choosing clothing, changing their names or pronouns, beginning hormone replacement therapy, and undergoing surgery. Detransitioning, which is in quotations, reverting to representing oneself as one's sex assigned at birth is often incorrectly conflated with regret by the media. In a study published in LGBT Health, researchers of psychiatry and health policy examined results from the U.S. Transgender Survey, which includes responses from 27,715 transgender and gender diverse adults, and found that very few people detransitioned due to internal regrets. Of 2,242 survey responders, respondents who detransitioned, 82.5% did so because of external factors, such as pressure from family, threats of violence, or losing employment or education opportunities. Only 2.4% of respondents who were reported detransitioning attributed to doubt about their gender identity. This result characterizes a relatable human experience, wanting to be safe and supported by one's family and community. People who choose to detransition may remain part of the trans community, and may later seek gender-affirming care. Okay, that was a lot shorter than I thought it was. Um, but yeah, wow. That's not at all surprising. Okay, I was unprepared for how short... I assumed it was going to be like a... Sometimes articles are, when they have a study, it's very long. And okay, next up, um, this is another video. This is from uh, Acre Campaigns, A-C-R-E Campaigns. Evictions are violence. We will not be silenced. There was a powerful action at Major Corporate Landlord Conference. This came out on September 23rd. So let me share the the audio from this. And this is just a little little less than a minute long. And they came up to me and they told me, where's your And I stood in the hallway and I shouted that evictions are violence. Yeah. We need that home. We need the community. 
This was a video and was shared on September 23rd. And again, there, I mean, there shouldn't have been evictions before the pandemic. There should not be evictions during a fucking pandemic. Again, it's astounding. And uh, similar to the stories earlier about people protesting at um, uh, outside healthcare clinics, uh, why someone who is in a position of power would choose to harm someone else. I just don't understand. So, does that make sense? Yeah. All right, next up, let's take a look here at, uh, going through these pretty quickly today. <sighs> Thanks so much for tuning in. Oh yeah, check out our website, weeklyrev.org. Donate to the Patreon. I don't know if this really works, so perhaps if you're listening, donate a dollar a month to our Patreon and we'll make it work. Next up, uh, Miriam Kaba, AKA at Prison Culture. It's a great account to follow on Twitter is re launching Rebuild, a project to connect criminalized people of color to therapists. Please donate if you can. I might click the link here, and we'll share that um, in our show notes. Okay. Um, okay, here's another story about dealing with fascists. And uh, this was a, an op-ed that, uh, thankfully, uh, NBC News um, actually shared. Because, you know... They usually don't. But the Shane Burley, who's an, the author of Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It, um, shared this article. And this is from July of 2021. Uh, and what seemed like a, an inst... You know what? This is a really informative article, and I am feeling like my voice is really about to give out a bit, and I want to hear other people's voices. So um, let's see. Let's see if we can uh, find another... Um, clip to play around this subject. And in the meantime, uh, let's play some music.
some uh, Betty Savert there for some good 90s feelings. Um, next up, I'm going to play a video. It's a little over an hour, so we'll just get to some of it here. Uh, the first half, um, Why We Fight, author Shane Burley with Kim Kelly and George uh, Ciccriello Mar. And this is from May of 2021 uh, from AK Press, Shane Burley's new book, Why We Fight, Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse, uh, AK Press 2021, covers the shifts in rhetoric and tactics of the alt-right since their disastrous Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017 and the explosion of anti-fascist, anti-racist, and revolutionary organizing that has risen to fight it really unpacks the moment we live in confronting the <laughs> apocalyptic feelings brought on by nationalism, climate change, and the crisis of capitalism, but also delivering the clear message that a new world is possible through the struggles of communities uh, are le leveraging today while we fight reminds us that we're fighting for not simply what we're fighting against. Also, sign up before I, there's so many more things I wanted to get to today. Um, support of IATSE looking to go on strike. And also, it looks like some HelloFresh workers have formed, I just closed that tab, uh, formed a union in Richmond, California. They've joined the Unite here. So it's just sending lots of love and solidarity to all workers out there looking to unionize and um, organize. Okay. Uh, yeah. The, there's a reason why I kind of tap out around this time. So we're going to hear this video. I'll post a link to the full thing on our website at weeklyrev.org. I think that's about it. I'll check in back in towards the end with some more music and an outro. And again, thank you so much for tuning in. I know it's a lot, but uh, helpful to understand what we're up against and what people are doing to show up. Hey, welcome, everybody. Um, this, is, uh, this event is sponsored by uh, Wouldn't You Books, an all-volunteer anarchist collective based in Philadelphia since 1976, and AK Press, um, fellow anarchist um, collective uh, book publisher. Um, we're here to celebrate and discuss uh, Shane Burley's uh, brand new book, Why We Fight, um, Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse. So um, I just wanted to uh, welcome everyone and uh, just briefly introduce our uh, our panel. So we have uh, the author, Shane Burley, with uh, Kim Kelly and George Tickerell-Lamar in conversation tonight. So thank you so much, everyone, for being here. Um, Shane Burley is a writer and filmmaker and the author of Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It, and of course, author of the new book, Why We Fight. Um, Kim Kelly is a freelance journalist and organizer based in Philadelphia. Her work on labor, class, politics, and culture has appeared in the New Republic, the Washington Post, the Baffler, and Esquire, among other publications. And she is the author of Fight Like Hell, a forthcoming book of intersectional labor history. And uh, finally, George Chikarel Omar is an organizer, writer, and radical political theorist. He is the author of We Created Chavez, Building the Commune, and Decolonizing Dialectics. And, uh, and, I've, and I understand uh, a new book on uh, a world without police, which I'm, I'm sure will uh, come up later in the discussion. So uh, everyone, welcome Shane, Kim, and George. Hey, thanks so much for, for coming. Uh, thanks, Kim and George, for, for coming with me. This is what I do. I just try and get my friends to hang out with me on Zoom and talk about stuff. Um, and I think it works a lot better than prepared stuff, which I've never been that great at. Um, 
So what I usually do in these is I kind of just get talking with folks. I write down a few questions that I'd love to hear other people's answers of, and we kind of do a little back and forth. So we'll probably just kind of ask each other questions for a little while. Um, we got an extra person here on the uh, Zoom now. George, what's their name? This is Tlaloc. Um, so I'll probably start. So when those around about halfway through or so, we'll start taking questions in the chat. So if you have something, pop in the chat. I'll scroll through it later. Um, and so we're all host, and we'll try and get to some of them. Um, so the book, um, some of the some of the essays are older. Some of them were written over 2020. Some of them were older than that, but I rewrote pieces of um, because there was this sort of moment of crisis when we hit sort of the summer months where it was pandemic, it was uh, epidemic police violence, it was huge mass police repression. Um, and then when I was putting together the introduction, the, the sun had been blotted out by forest fires. I think about 13% of Oregon was on fire then uh, towards the end of the summer. It totally overwhelmed things. There was this bright red sky. It was like nothing I've ever seen. And so there was this general feeling of apocalypse. Um, but there was also a sort of collapsing of movements into one kind of not unified, nothing's ever unified, but a real intersecting movement uh, against the far right on the one side and against the police on the other. And in a way, those things became so linked up together. Um, and so I thought we could kick off talking a little bit about the police and the far right, maybe how those things kind of work together, because I think it's still lost for people. There's been a conversation that those are two different conversations. I, I interviewed uh, Vicki Oswell about her book, uh, In Defense of Looting, and she said something about this that really stuck with me, which is that historically, the far-right groups have a piece in social control. Like, they're used to coming in and maintaining certain social hierarchies. And then, really, with mass incarceration, police took on a lot of that role. But what we're seeing now is a sort of return of the role of the far-right vigilante in there. So, like, in, in August, there was this, right at the height, I think, of almost 100 days of protesting in Portland, there was this far-right rally led by Proud Boys, some militia groups, street percenters and stuff. Uh, where it was the one time, the one time in three months when the police said they weren't going to intervene. Later that night, people out there spray painting stuff, no problems. The police come in and bust heads with batons and shoot tear gas. Um, but during that one window of time, when they were openly brandishing guns, when they were hitting people, you know, journalists, like activists, whoever, with batons, breaking bones, people had to be pulled out of there. Um, they just sat about three blocks away, got in the megaphone and said, hey, everyone has a point of view. Go ahead and police yourselves. It was just so clear what the interactions were, and I think it still was really hard sort of to, to make that case. So I thought I'd just maybe just throw out this, some use. How do you think about the role of the far right and the police? How do those work together? It's all very Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man, right? <laughs> not, to, not to sound flippant, but it's, you know, I, I don't think it's, I mean, there's been so much reporting, and even from, you know, nonpartisan, whatever, journalism outlets, just about the massive infestation of far-right viewpoints and ideologies within the police force. And even just the fact that their very purpose as agents of the state is to protect capital and to, you know, oppress anybody or murder or hurt or harm anybody who gets in the way of that goal. Like, it's, of course, the far-right and the police are like this. And we know how it, how inter intertwine those two communities, if you can call them that, are, I mean, just going back to the the insurrection at the Capitol, right? Like they were, sure, some cops got beat up and, and a couple got killed, but 
not that many of them seemed that upset about what was happening. And I'm sure then there was a lot of overlap in the communications. There was a lot of questions about why didn't they call out the National Guard or whoever earlier? Like it's, you know, cops and Klan go hand in hand. Like it's not just a protest chant, it's the reality of the situation we're in. And the sooner more people kind of fully grasp that, you know, the better because they're both trying to kill us and they're working together to kill us. And it would be, I think it'd be a good thing if we could present something resembling a united front against that existential threat. Yeah, I mean, I agree 100%. Um, and, uh, you know, on the, on the one hand, though, I think I think it's important to realize that, that there is a tension that's all always difficult to walk in our movements between dealing with the open white supremacist and the Nazis in the streets and dealing with like the slow fascism of the state, right? Um, dealing with the prisons, dealing with the police. And so I, I think on the one hand, there is a gap there. Um, you know, I've been in organizations where we had debates. It's like, are we fighting the Nazis or are we fighting the police, right? Are we turning to the state against the Nazis, which is always a really important strategic encounter for us. Um, but, you know, but what Kim has said is absolutely true, which is that the difference is really so minuscule. Um, not only is it the fact that the police are members of these organizations, right? They are explicitly sympathetic to white supremacist three percenter organizations in particular oath keeper type organizations um but uh, you know on top of that but the police are they break the law every single day they reshape the law and the the single direction that they push the law in is toward greater hierarchy um ultimately toward fascism right because they don't want oversight they want to be uh, you know and aspire to a fascism that involves absolute unchecked power for themselves I mean, and if you go back there, you know, the gap between this then and historically speaking, uh, you know, sort of lynching, you know, if you look at, you know, the killing of Ahmed Arbery, for example, yes, it was a lynch mob, but they're also police, right? They were literally policing him at the same time that they killed him. And so um, we don't want to overstate the gap either. And we want to understand the fact that these are really the same people doing the same thing. That every time, you know, uh, 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 you know, we look at, you know, killings of, of you know, other people, um, you know, the people that call 911, right, are police, right? White people who get worried about their, you know, their neighbors being too loud and call the police into their neighborhood or acting up. And so this broader fascism and this broader policing um, across society, I think, really blend into being one and the same thing. There's this, like, I guess it's called countering violent extremism, but there's this sort of, like, Almost, I would almost call it like a seductive mentality of wanting to see the police used against our enemies, so to speak. Or this idea, you know, occasionally you'll see like the base or some terrorist group like busted up by the FBI and say, wow, look how effective that was. That really shut them down. Maybe we can turn that against them. But it just, it's so ahistorical. It takes us out of what the reality of these organizations have actually been. Uh, and also, I think one of the realities of watching the disparity, you can see it too, like when, there's a, when they're policing, you know, a big clash between anti-fascists, which are always much larger than the far right, and how quickly the police will turn every single time without question. But it kind of reminds me of the question of armed self-defense, which I think is a lot of people's minds now. It was really clear, I mean, in, in a number of these rallies that, you know, if we weren't wearing, you know, uh, bulletproof vests and helmets, the whole gear on our own side, we would be really taken down even more. But, you know, coming home, walking away from those vents, walking to your car. Oh, baby, oh, 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 go stupid. Oh, 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 oh. Go crazy. Go stupid. Oh, 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 I did not realize there was going to be a sound clip there. Uh, they're not sharing the, the video. Um, but so anyway, back at it. Um, 
so basically anything that was going on in like walking back to your house being at home worrying about getting your address up there there was it became really really clear that if we didn't defend ourselves we just wouldn't be defended that was just going to be the bottom line um and it's hard i think you know the march for our lives and a lot of those movements against the nra which totally have a real reason behind them and i'm not going to want to take that away from them or, or, or kind of make invisible the causes of it became really hard to actually have a conversation about what does a left gun culture that's actually helpful and sustainable, um, and what does it actually take to be sustainable. Uh, what, what do you think about the kind of the, the left gun I have been instructed, and I want to shout out Philly SRA. I'm a member of that organization, and one of the things about that particular organization that really appeals to me is that there's so much focus on mutual aid, on community building. And just on the idea that protecting the community, defending a community, it's not just showing up with a rifle and being like, hey, we're here, what's up? Like that's, you don't really want to get to that point, right? You wanna find a way to protect and defend people and make them feel safe and remove harm before it gets to that point. But one thing that I will say is that, you know, as we've seen over the past few years, that point is becoming more frequent. And I got involved in, specifically in like leftist gun culture world after A12 in Charlottesville, after Redneck Revolt showed up and they protected a bunch of us in a park while there were Nazis everywhere. And that's a very visceral feeling to see, to look over and see someone who's on your side, carrying a firearm, acting responsibly, being there to help you. Because in public spaces, most of us are used to seeing people with guns as it's going to be cops, it's going to be the military, because apparently we have the National Guard in Philly forever now. Like, there's going to be creepy border agents. Like, it's not – and obviously, a lot of people have you know, very deep and and valid feelings about firearms in general. Not everybody needs to go pick up a gun. Not everybody should feel like they, sh- like they need to. Like, that's a decision that you should make, you know, internally and externally with the people that you think you're defending. Like, nobody wants a vigilante. That's what the right wing wants. They don't care about their people or their community because they don't have one. They don't – they, they care about their ideas and their urge to enforce them on everybody else. Well, all that to say is like, you know, I think it's a, a positive development, especially when you see groups like, like specifically queer and trans led groups or specifically black and brown led groups who are like, look, we're like, we want to learn how to defend ourselves in this manner. We want this knowledge. We want to be able to share this with our communities because we are the ones facing the brunt of the repression, the violence from the state and just from society at large. You know, I think there's, I think there is value in understanding how to use these tools and to viewing them as tools instead of objects of fear, because that's what the state, the state wants us to be afraid of firearms and afraid of the idea of fighting back. And of course, nobody ever wants to be in a gun battle. Nobody wants to have to use that tool and that weapon. But one thing I'll say, just from being in being in situations, being in places where there's police and then there are community defenders who are armed, there is a reticence from the police to engage in the way that we're used to. Because I think the, the presence of a firearm, it is, it is implicitly, it is a threat. It is, that is something that needs to be understood and acknowledged. And showing up with a firearm anywhere is an escalation. And so the police don't usually see most of us as people or as humans, but when you're a non-human who happens to have a gun, that kind of elevates you and, and messes with the power dynamic a little bit. Like that maybe they'll think 
for five seconds longer before coming after you, you know? And it's, you know, it's, it's very complicated. I've talked to Scott Crow about all this a lot, and I would definitely recommend looking into his writings about it because he's shaped a lot of my thinking on this topic. And, you know, just being able to spend time and be in dialogue and conversation with other people in this space as a reporter and like as a leftist gun owner has really, it's been really important for me in shaping the way I see the way we engage with the world, the way we protect our people. So I'm really happy that we're talking about this. Even if people disagree, that's still healthy and good. Like we can't just, we can't accede, like accede firearms and gun culture in general to the right wing because we know that they want that. They want, they want to, to think that people on the left, even liberals are just like, oh, we're scared of guns. We just want to take them all. And no, I would prefer nobody takes mine either, but I'm not going to go like be a, a weird genocidal freak about it, you know? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think the reality is that the only way fascist and police and the fascist police out of neighborhoods is through building self-defense, right? Um, at the same time, self-defense is much bigger than guns as well. Self-defense self is fundamentally about safety, right? Insofar as guns contribute to that safety, that's amazing, but so do rapid response networks. So do building community ties and relationships and community organizations that can de-escalate conflict, prevent conflict, prevent the police from coming in. This is what makes, you know, strong communities and prevents, you know, all of these interventions from, you know, from the outside. I think that's crucial to understand. Um, also here repping, you know, Philadelphia, uh, SRA. So maybe I'm a bit uh, biased as well. Um, but another piece I want to add is that, yeah, and for people, Redneck Revolt was mentioned. And I think one of the things that's really important uh, sort of strategically about what, what Redneck Revolt seeks to do is that it's also about pulling the rug out from under the far left. Um, and this is not so much a question of self-defense, it's more a question of speaking to, you know, uh, I mean, speaking to people that the Democratic Party doesn't care about, right? Speaking to the hinterlands, right? Speaking to, uh, you know, the rural areas and providing um, an ability to join the left right, to join struggles for justice. So for people that don't know Redneck Revolt, for example, will go to gun shows and do sort of radical, you know, flyering and talk to people about, you know, social justice, about, you know, struggles against police violence, against anti and to really give people who are self-identified rednecks, who are self-identified, you know, um, you know, gun lovers, the ability to be that and also be radical and also be revolutionary, right? The ability to you know to, to build this bridge to what would be the natural constituency of the far right and steal that constituency away on some level i think that's a crucial part of what we're trying to build alongside um, this question of self-defense for our movements and for our communities yeah it seems like part of this question of how we actually talk to people about ideas on the left so totally seeded the ground all rural areas in a lot of ways just like blue collar working class if you think about what the left like an old left versus now it's just like miles away i should give a shout out pdx sra also uh, don't want the left out of it um i think that that question of mutual aid too has been on my mind a, a lot because it's sort of the question of social reproduction it's like how does a, a social movement actually continue over time so you know we were part of these mutual aid networks that some of which already existed, but some of which were new around the pandemic. Um, and they met like very real needs. I, I was kind of, when I was younger, I, I, I think I had a dismal view of mutual aid groups in general. I thought maybe that's not real organizing or like the ones I had seen were done really poorly. You know, I did food not bombs for many years when I was younger and uh, 
you know, in the end, I, I look back and feel like I was almost insulting people with my dumpster food. Uh, that was, you know, unpredictable at the time. I'd show up an hour late, drunk all the time. You know, it was just like not a very effective way. And like the soup kitchen down the street actually delivered stuff at a certain time with a certain quality every week. But that changed. I've seen a big, big change in that in that work where like the quality and the sort of committed nature of it and the way that it interlocked with other social movements has really like taken a, another step forward. So on the one side, it's like the state is quite literally unable to care for people, not even just in the kind of um, kind of insulting and um, depreciating way, it, it at least theoretically did before. Um, not for everyone, but even for some communities. Um, but then you had this like fighting situation where we really needed to intervene and had the opportunity to intervene right then. So we created some social, uh, some mutual aid projects, you know, like I was delivering people's grocery medication around town or like making, um, or folks were making, um, hand sanitizer and that kind of thing. And then those folks already had like an infrastructure for when the, the big protest movement started happening towards the summer, they were there to give people rides and get people bailed out and get people all the stuff they needed to be safe, you know, masks on site and that kind of thing. And they were became even more of them. And then by the time the fires happened out here, these folks were already trained up as street medics and they were heading into the fire zone uh, where they would let them, where the militia didn't think they were Antifa setting more fires, you know, but they would be, they were there like helping folks right away. And so it ended up being one thing after the other, after the other of all these things kind of working together. And it gave me a lot more hope about our capacity to really build something, you know, coming out of that. And it felt like a depressing year in a lot of ways, but there was just so much of it and so much dependability amongst each other. And so I feel like mutual aid, those, that sense, like George talking about, that's what really makes us safe is having a vibrant community where we can finally rely on each other in a really profound way. And it's spread a lot too, right? It's prior to, I think, the past year or so, especially prior to the pandemic, mutual aid was sort of something that was kept within radical circles, like an anarchist, anti-fascist world. Like we know what mutual aid is and what it, you know, what it does and the importance of it, but that doesn't mean that everybody does. But when you break it down the way that, you know, it was broken down during the pandemic, like you're saying, like people just taking care of their neighbors, people just helping out, like and that is a radical act of radical love and caring and, you know, building community. But people, and I think the fact that mutual aid became such a big deal. I mean, the New Yorker did a piece about it. It was everywhere. All these explainers, what's mutual aid? And like, you know, read the bread book. But if you don't have time to read the bread book, you can just go and buy groceries for your elderly neighbor and you're doing mutual aid. That's a radical act. If you're showing up at a park to help serve, you know, maybe not old dumpster food, nice dumpstered food to people <laughs> like it is I just think it's um it's given us kind of an opportunity to share what are seen as radical ideas with people that maybe don't see themselves that way but are receptive to it because it's like I think it is a lot easier to sort of introduce or like sell people on on, on radical and anarchist anti-fascist ideas when they're like look here's we're helping like we are providing aid to the community we're helping the people that the government doesn't care about I think people are going to be much more receptive to hearing, you know, well, what else do they have to say? If they're, they can't be that bad, you know, if they're out here taking care of grandmas. So it's, yeah, it's been interesting seeing that opportunity develop and, you know, seeing what we do with it going forward. Because I think the past year, a lot of people have radicalized in a lot of ways and a lot of them have radicalized and like, you know, towards our team and that's great, but like, okay, now what do we do? <laughs> like, how do we keep folks in the fold now that, it doesn't necessarily feel as, as crucial to handle deliveries or hand out food to neighbors who can now go get it, you know? 
Yeah, I think, and, and I mean, like, as everyone said, I think there's this sort of like up and down of this relationship between the sort of meeting of basic needs, right? The Black Panther survival programs on the one hand and the armed self-defense sort of antagonistic, even insurrectionary moments on the other. And on the one hand, people are always doing this work. And again, you know, Philly Food Not Bombs does amazing work, always have. It's this sort of everyday existing fabric of mutual aid. But then it takes on a different tenor when things really break down and when, when things really flare up, right? So in, and this was extra clear because of COVID. Um, in COVID, you know, under COVID in Philly, public schools were closed to become food distribution sites for kids that needed lunches, right, free lunches. But during the rebellions, both back in June and then again in October after Walter Wallace was killed, both cases, you know, National Guard come and occupy West Philly, you know, occupy downtown. Um, the school food distribution was shut down. And so Food Not Bombs was literally the food distribution in our neighborhood over here in Malcolm Park. And there was no one else around, right? And everything was shut down and you couldn't take the buses or the subway and everything was locked into the neighborhood. Um, and in that moment, you know, things take on a different tenor, right? Um, and that's all to say, I think, that that work is crucial and important at all times. And then the question is, how does it rise to that next level? You know, what, how does it come to play this role that's more attached to these um, you know, these movements in the moments when it really matters. And that's that's completely been the case here over the past year. Like the the, the question was called on people in a way, and it, it really did come together and like surprisingly, well, it shouldn't even be surprising, but like the logical conclusion of years and years of organizing, you know, over the last 10 years, there's been just such a, a rapid increase and like an acceleration of that organizing work. And our capacity, our ability to use it, the ability to use like social tools to get at people and just get people plugged in as quickly as possible. I think also the growth of existing organizations that can be revolutionary way, like our unions, which are like a lot of us, you know, like I'm a union member, a lot of us are seeing that increase really rapidly right now and seeing people take labor seriously, even when it's getting, you know, beaten down in Alabama or undermined by bosses and that kind of thing. So I, kind of, I also have this, I mean, this question, I guess, a big question that I don't know if we can you know, answer right here, which is what do we do about, you know, growing organized labor right now? But I guess I have a question about what can things organizations like labor unions do outside of just the workplace? How can they like start to confront or be a tool as part of a piece of anti-fascism? How can we fight the police? I think obviously starting off with how can we kick the, the police unions out of all unions uh, and get them out of union spaces? Uh, but what do you think? I mean, I, as you know, I have a lot of opinions and thoughts about police unions and the fact that I'm just because I am a union member, I am somehow expected to see an armed agent of the state as my union brother or union sister, whereas they have impunity to go out and murder any number of other union brothers and sisters and siblings. Like it's, there, there's such a cognitive dissonance there. And I think it's really important that, you know, those of us in the movement who do feel very strongly about this and want to do more to push push the cops out and push the prison guards and border guards and, and, and any agent of the carceral state who is sort of like just pushed under labor's big 10. Like they shouldn't be there. They're not workers. They're not part of the working class. If anything, you know, if you take the state aspect out of it, they're managers because they can do whatever they want and they have power over the rest of us in the working class. It's the same reason that, you know, the armed forces aren't unionized because they're not workers. They are- The first family detention center. And this is, there's this fundamental disconnect, I think, in, especially in 
kind of the upper levels of the labor movement where the leadership is, where they're maybe a little more disconnected from the rank and file. And, you know, they, they think that reform is enough and that a code of excellence will solve everything that, you know, just a couple of bad apples and all of that liberal reformist rhetoric, which we know isn't going to get us anywhere. It's not going to get the cops to, you know, stop murdering less people. And it's not going to get cop unions to stop trying to reinstate killer cops. You know, it's, it, it, it can be kind of a delicate line to ostensibly seem to attack a, you know, a public sector union because, you know, if you go after the cop unions, what happens to teachers unions and like, uh, you know, municipal workers, pe- workers who are actually making the world better. But I think it's a difficult conversation that needs to continue to be had. We need to keep pushing because if all of these unions that put out Black Lives Matter statements and racial justice this and equality that, all of this nice branding that, that gets rolled out, especially over the past year and a half. If they wanna come out here and yell about Black Lives Mattering, but then turn around and defend police and defend police unions and try to you know, handhold them and keep them close, that's, that, that's just hypocritical. That's not solidarity, that's just weakness. And one thing that labor movement cannot stand and cannot handle right now is weakness. We're already getting this, you know, getting the bejesus beat out of us. Things are maybe a little better now, but they've been so bad. Like union density is so low. We have, yeah, we have some power, but not nearly at the heights which we used to. And if the labor movement wants to continue to grow and actually organize and support and defend the working class that it's supposed to be doing those things for, kicking out the cops is kind of the least we can do. There's not even that many of them. Yeah, getting rid of union members Maybe like it, it's, it might hurt a little bit, you know, cutting off, you know, a, a disease sore so you can heal better. It's going to sting. But ultimately, that's the only way we can heal and grow and actually move forward. Because there are a lot of rank and file members who are very upset about having to share space with the same people who are coming out and tear gassing and beating them every night. Like Shane, we were just talking about this earlier about some folks in, I think, like in your neck of the woods who actually kind of kicked them out. Like they... There's like a, a warning shot, right? Like what happened there? Yeah, no, there, there's been some, this is, isn't the only one, but there's been some locals out here where like both members and staff at the unions refused to deal with them and gave, they basically uh, managed no choice but to, to kick them out and say, hey, you're on your own or we're going to pass you off to fraternal order police or something like that or put, pass you basically out of the union just to c- cancel the contract, that kind of thing. Um, and th- in a way, that's sort of like what, people have to do here they have to give union administration no choice um either i mean that 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 takes everyone at all levels because the reality is, is that having cops in union will conservatize the union it, they will actively participate and and hurting black and brown workers from breeding worker interests what's actually in their lives that kind of thing so i you know i think there is a this this worry at internationals right now that any loss of funds is going to be like the death knell that that's the thing but in reality it's like you're already cutting your feet off by having cops in there you're not meeting your goals you're not actually communicating with people um you're actually tarnishing public sector unions as an issue if you really you know because like then one was talking about like oh all these contracts and cop unions don't function as unions they function as criminal cartels they don't actually advocate for themselves as workers they advocate almost like an autonomous union i think it's you know, Christian Williams who talks about this, that you know, the state isn't one institution and police unions really have their own agenda and their own cost and benefit. Like they don't have the same calculation as workers do because they don't function as workers. And so they have their own interests entirely. 
Absolutely. And, you know, so, I mean, I don't want to plug my book, but so A World Without Police hits this summer. But, you know, part of what I argue in that book is that police are protection racket. I mean, that's what they do, which is that they amplify and exaggerate threats. And then they say, give us all this money and we'll take care of it. Lo and behold, they never reduce violence. They never make communities safer. There's statistical analysis, you know, showing that this is true. And yet we somehow don't want to do it. Um, Abolition, abolishing the police, defunding the police. We talk about these things and we talk about building communities and we talk about prefigurative alternatives. All of that is amazing, but if you don't confront police power, you're not going to get there. And you confront police power by crushing police unions because they're without a, without a doubt the spearhead of that power, operating on the local level, bullying local administrations into contract agreements on the state level, passing uh, these law enforcement bill of rights um, and attempting to do so uh, you know, on the federal level and playing this sort of bully pulpit role. Uh, when you see, you know, these lynch characters, when you see, uh, you know, Kroll, Bob Kroll in Minneapolis on Fox News, pushing the hardest line right-wing fascist agenda in public. And these are the representatives of the police union. They're the source and the, and the spearhead of this power. They need to be broken. Um, the, you know, and, and as Kim said, like the real future of the labor movement is in low-income, low-wage, you know, communities of color. Um, who can be recruited and should be recruited by the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And yet when you have police in your unions, you're actively sending a message that says you're not welcome, right? Um, and you know, you're not welcome in a union in which this union brother is going to kill your family or kill you, um, you know, in, in, you know, on the streets. Uh, at the same time, I think this all po also points toward a broader question of labor, question of how unions deal with questions of white supremacy and race. Um, and the way I like to think about it is that, you know, there's this old kind of Communist Party line, which was, you know, the rough summary was black and white unite and fight. Um, but what this meant in practice was kind of reducing um, differences to whatever kind of minimum program, you know, black and white workers could agree upon. But then there were organizations like the Sojourner Truth Organization and others in the 1970s that said, you know what, the way we fight white supremacy in the workplace is by targeting that white supremacy, right? The way the movement gets stronger is by fighting white supremacy. So instead of fighting for a small wage increase, let's fight against the fact that black workers are paid less in their last hired and first fired. Let's fight against this inequality in the workplace that as a result will strengthen the labor movement because the fundamental thing in the fundamental question is that the segmentation and the differences within the labor movement are what make it weak, right? And this goes for the border too, right? The idea that migrants are undermining the strength of labor is bullshit. It's the border that's undermining the strength of labor. It's white supremacy in the labor movement that's under, undermining the strength of labor. And if you eliminate those different leverage points, then the bosses can't use those to drive down wages. They can't use those to you know, drive down protections and to divide the movement. So confronting these divisions, confronting them head on is really how the labor movement can get stronger moving forward. It seemed like the you know, the old school AFL approach of hiding the fact that they didn't have good bargaining power by singling out immigrants or trying to like restrict labor pools instead of actually creating like good organizing. And it seems to be a question called on labor now is if they're actually going to have worker power or they're going to leverage it out, you know, either on lobbying on the one side or making like cutting deals on the other. Um, you know, and I always always get funny looks when I say this at union meetings, but there's a, a certain model, I think, of a union that's, I, the analogy I've always heard is to be more like Hezbollah, which is not to say like Hezbollah, but to be more like this union's involved in all parts of your life. You know, we all just have a strike fund. We have a mutual aid fund and we do mutual aid work, not just with our workers, but in the neighborhood that we're in, because we're a part of that neighborhood. 
And, you know, we help fill gaps in your lives, you know, but not just with money, but with people. Like we actually get involved in programs and do this sort of thing. And I'd like to see people see a union as their home more than I think they have the last few years where it's like, you know, you barely see talk to your union. If you do, it's usually a staff person and it's about like your pension or paying bills or something like that. I'd like to see it be actually present like that. Um, you know, when, when you're just talking about the, the cops, one thing that I thought was interesting was the way that police were talked about over the summer. So like in Portland uh, and not other cities, I think Chicago, some other folks, Minneapolis, federal officers came in with, you know, totally different kinds of instructions than local police. Well, totally different. Um, and they were usually confederations of, you know, border patrol and, and kind of uh, DHS, other